Welcome to the Wi-Fi Pioneers Podcast. This is episode two, and we are your hosts, Colt and Remy. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? All right, so today we're going to be talking a couple different topics on uh, housing as investment and kind of the, the myths that go with it, the potential good, but a lot of the bad that people don't realize when they're getting into housing, both as rental and primary um, real estate. But before we get into that, we want to talk about a few things that we're observing with the Elon Musk Twitter deal. As of the date of this recording, it's only been like two days of Elon buying, and we haven't really seen his whole plan on furl yet. But I'm already noticing things that he's done that I had to learn the hard way uh, in the first two businesses that I purchased. Um, so without going into too much details on the businesses themselves, I don't want to dox myself, but um, the first two companies I owned, I purchased. I didn't start them up from scratch. I found a, a seller who was already had an established business going and bought one and had a, had a small amount of income to go with. It was more of a part-time job, kind of a part-time deal. And as I got my feet wet with it, I decided to up the stakes. My wife and I upped it to get a bigger full-time uh, business that would generate a full-time income. And both times, we kept all the prior employees and contractors in place and tried to run it like the old business did, the old business owner, and kind of see what they were doing before we started firing people and laying people off that shouldn't have been there. And kind of what happened is both times, not kind of, exactly what happened both times is within about three or four months of purchase, we had fired everybody who worked there. Something about the transition, it just didn't hold. Um, you know, constantly what happened was you kept hearing, well, that's not how the last owner did it. That's not how the last owner did it. And we were always fighting with our employees about this. And eventually, we had, you know, it would start with letting go one one employee who was too lazy and then an assistant manager and then a manager. And, you know, we had to keep hiring new and kind of starting from scratch, even though the business was established. And what we've seen Elon do is walk right in and fire the top level, everybody, all management at that business at, at Twitter. And on day one, and, you know, that's something that took me two attempts at running a business to learn that if you purchase something, you just got to start over. You're not going to be able to work with the prior management. It just doesn't seem to ever work. So were those purchases on uh, businesses that you were trying to pull a turnaround on, or were they things that you could, uh, I don't know, add, add some kind of new market or, or something like that? Or were you just trying to perpetuate, you know, the revenue model that had already been proven? So we were perpetuating what was already been proven, and then from there, adding on additional services that were more modern. That um, you know, one of the owners had owned owned the place for almost forty years and had not changed a thing in forty years. So we were trying to bring it into the modern era. And then the other one was a pretty self sustaining model that we didn't have to change a lot with, except for the people. They had to be mm-hmm. changed. They just would not. Uh, they. they or would not accept new management, new new owners, and wouldn't leave. So they ultimately got fired for it. Yeah. Uh, so one thought on that: it's interesting that you know when you buy a small business, ostensibly you'd be buying it because you think that you can drive more value than the prior owner did. Um, and so if you're an employee on a on a business that's being transitioned to new management, you can expect some changes, right? Um, but then I, I've also been on the other side where we weren't actually selling to a new owner. We were just taking a strategic partner and uh, that strategic partner came in and 
gutted a couple of the senior managers uh, and absolutely completely changed the entire dynamic of the company. And it was just basically the talent just left <laughs> right afterwards. Yeah. Um, so I've seen, I've seen both sides. I wonder if you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, when, um, when do you think that the talent that's already there is much more applicable to stay? Uh, and when do you think that the talent there is like, oh, wow, I, I don't even want to try to salvage this. I'm going to, I just need to start over completely. You know, I wish I had a straight answer for that. Um, so the second time we upgraded to the larger business, one mistake I made was trying to, we came in and we said, Hey, we're not going to make any major changes for like at least two weeks, maybe a month. We just want to see how things run. And I should not have said that because it was a promise I couldn't keep. It, we were two days into it. And I saw so many inefficiencies and that were just, it was literally just money walking out the door that I had to start making changes right away. And of course that sent everybody into upwards. They're like, you promised no changes. And I was like, yes, I'm breaking that promise because we are flushing money on day two. Like, so yeah. Um, I'm not sure how Do you, you uh, I don't know. You can prevent the talent from leaving as part of it, because if you come in and you start making changes, I, I just don't, I mean, theoretically it's possible. I know it's happened and, and other people have bought businesses, but as a general rule, you're probably at the very least not going to be able to work with the management uh, or mid-level management, the upper or mid-level management. Um, if you have talented people that aren't in the management areas, you might be able to still use them and capitalize them if the business is big enough. What I've usually seen is when there's a change in ownership, that ownership team has their, even if it's like a small mom and pop shop, you know, they'll, they'll have a son or something who's uh, fairly well-versed in business. Um, and uh, he'll come in and uh, he'll take over the accounting books and, you know, basic oversight of the operations because he's their trusted um, advocate or, or representative uh, at least as a minimum to make sure that, uh, that your interests are being protected when you take over a business. Um, but, uh, so let's say in that situation where you were just coming in, uh, how did you handle the firing? I mean, obviously there's probably, probably less emotions involved than when, you know, you've, these are, you know, like sons and daughters of yours and, <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or, you know, effectively sons and daughters, cause you've had them employed for 10 years or something. Um, but that wasn't the situation you were in. So how did you handle that firing? So you didn't accidentally land any lawsuits or, you know, this is the me too area, people taking any kind of leverage they can against you. So the first firing was the hardest and it was also, but it was also kind of unique. That business was a, um, they they weren't actually W2 employees. They were independent contractors working with my tools and my space. So the first person to be fired was more like a canceling of contract, but it was still firing a person. And that was the absolute hardest one because there was a thought of if this person leaves, are they going to take everybody else with them? And I'm going to have nobody here to work. Like that was the major fear I had, but then, you know, I had to, you know, my wife and I kind of analyzed it and looked at it and said, now nah, that's not likely because this person is just out of their mind. And we got rid of that one. Um, that I, sh- I should have clarified at the beginning. The first business we had, we didn't fire everybody. We, we retained about half of the people initially and then slowly brought in replacements. Um, and what happened is we actually found out that the other people who did stay 
did not like those people. They saw them as you know toxic to the environment. So it actually helped us to start being more motivated to get rid of toxic people. Uh, in the second business, it actually started from uh, started from the bottom up, and it probably should have started started from the top down. But we started getting rid of the minimum wage employees who weren't producing first, because again, we had that concern that we didn't know enough about the day-to-day operations as the manager who had been there for 10 years. And really what it came down to was we, we did actually know everything we needed to know on day one. We just didn't trust ourselves. And it's like, if you're, if you're going to buy the business, you, you should know how to run it and you should trust yourself when you think you know enough about it to buy it. You have to trust in yourself. And we just, let this idea get in our head that the manager was irreplaceable. And uh, that cost us a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of headache, because it took a couple of months to actually fire that person. Have you ever been on the other side of it where you were working at an organization and, you know, brought in new leadership, new management, and uh, they wanted to turn things around day one uh, versus, you know, they come in and just kind of like see, see the lay of the land and where all the power um, circles are and, and, the various personality dynamics going on and then they wait six months before they make a move. Uh, I've only in the military and law enforcement environments, which are essentially the same thing, they're government jobs. So there's no profit motive. Um, And it's in those environments, it's always the same thing. New commander comes in and he's going to save us from ourselves and he's got 18 months and then he's out, and then the next commander comes in, and they're going to save us from ourselves. And every time they, they, you know, it's just the same, same rotation and the same nonsense. So you know, they're going to come in, they're going to give you a big speech, tell you how fucked up you are, and then um, within like three weeks, everything's back to normal. You know, it's a lot of chaos for a few weeks, and it just falls and goes right back to the same routine. Certainly, yeah. Got to get those OER bullets. Um, did they? Exactly. Uh, and, and, and obviously, a big difference between. Um, you know, a commander who's appointed effectively inheriting the leadership position or being granted the leadership position versus uh, somebody who's buying a business, right? Putting their own capital on the line, putting their own. Yeah. Um, but you know, to, steal that, on the line. to steal that term from Taleb, it's skin in the game. You know, military commanders and uh, law enforcement, um, depending on branch, they all have a different different ranks, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, et cetera. But essentially, they're all some form of commander. They have no skin in the game. They're not going to get fired. If they screw up totally, they'll just be, you know, become a staff officer on their next rotation. But they're not going to get fired. Um, in the, the very worst cases, they'll get relieved of that position, but they're never kicked out of the military or law enforcement. It almost never happens once they get to that rank. So um, there's no skin in the game. They're, they're, there's nothing on the line for them. Their paycheck's going to be exactly so the don't same. Take any- <laughs> so, yeah don't take any real risk, right? Huge asymmetry there. All you do is not rock yeah. the boat and you just rank up. Uh, and so, much. yeah, if you combine those two things together, you know, lack of skin in the game and, uh, and the fact that they have to, to make all these, you know, apparent changes, the whole thing is just hogwash, right? It's just, it's yeah. just pure. Well, so uh, lip we speech. had a, we had a running joke that there was only two um, standard operating procedures, you know, SOPs in the army. There's the current one and then the next commanders. And they just take the new one and switch it with the old one back and forth. Every other commander, we just go, we just flip back and forth. That way they can say, I made these changes. And the next guy comes in, dusts off, you know, the prior commander's handbook and goes, now I made these changes and nothing ever actually changes. Isn't it weird how we started out as a country of, of pioneers and, and uh, risk takers and, um, 
and people charting their own path in life. And now we've had these huge segments of society and government jobs where they always have a boss that they have to please. That boss may or may not have any real um, uh, decent motivations in mind or actually have any um, uh, incentives that align with adding value to the business, right? Especially in the huge companies, like the internal politics. I've got an example, like when we're selling into a big company, uh, we, we can sit there and speculate, oh yeah, you know, we've talked to their, uh, their buying reps and, and they really like our product. And, uh, uh, it looks like it solves real problems for them. In fact, if I were in their shoes, I would be buying this for sure. And, uh, but then inevitably when you're going through the, uh, the hierarchies, the power hierarchies, 90% of the purchasing decision is political. We have to make it seem like so-and-so's idea. We have to, <laughs> we yeah. have to create a career incentive for, some VP to sign off on it. Right. And so it ends up being that, you know, the business dev opportunity is just recognizing that there's a, a desire there to buy the product, but then the account executive has to roll through and just manage these personalities and these in just incredibly complex web of, of political incentives. And I mean, that's, there's a lot to that game. There's a reason why those guys are paid a lot. Um, that's well, you can easily, um, you can easily sidetrack a great deal that way. Well, that's not unlike the military. So I hit a point where I started reading Dilbert comics, not for humor, but for guidance, because it became one exactly. of the best ways yeah. to navigate. <laughs> and so one of the easiest ways, I, I had this captain who uh, now I think he's a lieutenant colonel, which is, is frightening, but I had this captain who had such a massive ego. I swear, if you walked in there holding a mirror in front of your face, he'd think he was talking to himself. Like he just, he was obsessed with himself. And anytime I needed something from him, I would just walk in and say, hey, sir, remember last week when you said this? I think we can make that happen. And he, he never thought of that. And he, but he didn't even take the time to, to consider that he hadn't thought of an idea. If you came in saying it was his idea, he was going to just approve it right on the spot. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's straight out of Dilbert. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't there long enough for it to, to backfire. Well, I I say I was there. He wound up promoting on up to the next uh, place that he could be a disaster. But, you know, for simple things that you needed, like training opportunities or sending people to other events, participating in training exercises out of state, something like that. You just like, hey, sir, remember when you said that this would be a good idea? I think we can make it happen. And he's like, if we can make it happen, we have to make it happen. I'm like, yep. And it means straight from the pointy haired boss. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree there. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, anyway, the, the internal politics of getting to decision making is just something else. It's, uh, we've become so efficient, we've become inefficient. And that's, yeah, it's, um, going back to Taleb, this is something he highlights, right? Is, uh, when you're, uh, when you're trying to make everything too perfect, all you do is push the risk out to the corners and amplify it. And so, uh, yeah. Um, you know, think of a, a perfect example is just in time manufacturing. Uh, if anything goes wrong in that supply chain, good luck. Right. And the reason well, you're doing exactly... just, in, just in time manufacturing is because your inventory is, is such a severe uh, cost of capital. Right. And so now not only are you not producing, but that cost of capital is just hitting you twice as hard now. Go ahead. I was going to say, that's exactly what destroyed us during COVID is pre COVID. We were so efficient that we had to have, there's no warehouses anymore storing goods. The, the truck that's delivering is the warehouse. You know, Amazon distribution center is not a warehouse. It's a place where products funnel in, get rearranged and funnel back out to the consumer. And 
pre-COVID, they, things were so dialed in with this just-in-time or on-demand economy that with very little fluctuation, they could um, they could handle things. They, they knew precisely how many of whatever product it was, how much toilet paper needed to be shipped out, how many, how many pounds of beef needed to go to the grocery store, et cetera. Everything was pretty well dialed in for every single region. And then you have this little hiccup happen where we shut down for two weeks and we still haven't recovered. It, it's you know October 2022 as of this recording, and there's still really big delays on so many items that you wouldn't think, you know, two years later, we think we'd be past this, but there's still supply chain issues that haven't been settled over, you know, March of uh, 2021 or uh, 2020. As a related point, I, I've just seen very few major companies that are creating value. That's one example, right? They, um, somebody, some uh, corporate executive gets his OER bullet because he increased inventory efficiency by, you know, five or 10%. And then three days, three weeks later, or three months later, uh, it blows up in his face and the company loses, you know, a year or two of operating profits yeah. <laughs> just in the, in the complications. But the sheer scale of the incompetence, um, ineffectiveness of these massive companies always blows my mind. Like I, I just, I, I rarely ever see where they're actually creating value. I think they just use their power relationships to extract value out of the smaller companies around them. Sort of like, you know, the grown up equivalent of beating a kid up and taking his lunch money. Yeah. Well, or you could just say the, the baby boomer strategy of life, but, um, you know, take all the structure that the uh, greatest generation gave you and then just deny it all to the millennials and blame the millennials for being failures. But sorry. oh my gosh, yeah, we could talk about that forever. But like, yeah, yeah, throwing the biggest lead in the history of the world and uh, and and gutting the entire economy and creating a just a paper economy, right? Like, all we've done is uh, is export dollars over the years instead of exporting real things, and so now that's going to come home to roost. Yeah. Well, and this is not the uh, tangent I was intended to go on, but that's exactly it. We were the biggest producers in World War II. We we outproduced an entire continent. And we're able to win a war because of it. And then we stopped producing goods, made everybody use the dollar for every international transaction, and then just exported dollars and made them dependent on, you know, fiat currency. Yeah, that wasn't going to blow up in a couple of decades. Yeah, so that's a great point. Actually, this is this is something I've been thinking about recently. Is uh, at what point is protectionist industrial policies, so tariffs and things like that, uh, or direct incentives? At what point is that helpful? for rebuilding an economy that we've gutted or are we just uh are we just perpetuating the problem by uh creating all sorts of malinvestment so government directed investment effectively uh that's not long term sustainable not long term uh uh from a from a unit cost perspective or anything like that yeah i don't know um sorry so i Still thinking about what you said a few minutes ago about the companies not being, um, you know, the, the amount of, what you call them, zombie companies? <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, I mean, zombie companies, I think of more as like, they're not actually, even financially, they're not uh, viable because they're, they're not actually able to produce profits enough to service their debt at any reasonable debt level and, and uh, interest rate. Um, and uh, But there's also the, the non- accounting aspect, which is just, you just see how many opportunities they miss and how little they're able to accomplish in a day. And then you watch all the just complete waste. Like think of all these expense accounts, you know, when it's always a, a you know, it's a, um, 
it's always a big windfall when one of your buddies gets a job at one of these big companies with a huge expensive account, right? Cause he can, he can uh, tag all the meals for, <laughs> for everybody. And, uh, but that's straight up waste. Whereas when you run your own company and it's money coming out of your pocket, you really have to justify every penny. And it really hurts when you've got some big expense that's not worth it on the payroll. Like for example, right now we've got this consultant that's like charges, I think it's probably an order of magnitude higher than everybody else on an hourly basis because he charges by uh, just basically a, a monthly retainer. It's just, it, oh, it just keeps me up at night because I'm so angry about it, but we're in this with another company. And so it's not, it's not an easy situation where we can just fire the guy, right? Uh, he's, he, <laughs> he comes from government. So he has the, the mindset of, well, all I have to do is you know, sit here and, and technically provide, you know, my set of job description uh, bullets uh, I'm not going to go out of my way to, to solve any real problems or I'm not going to uh, go after or address anything along the way because that's not my job description. You know, how many times have you heard that? And then yeah. who knows if he's actually delivering any value in the uh, anyway, because he's, of course he's, he's straight up an expert at the government game. He doesn't have any deliverables. He doesn't have any quantifi- quantifiables. So as I'm sitting here trying to justify like why we're paying this guy so much, I can't come up with anything. Not only that, it really destroys the uh, culture in your company because all these other people are working their butts off and they see this guy making out like a bandit and they're like, Hey, wait, what a second. Is this, is this a, now a political organization? I thought we were building something cool here. Yeah. It's like, are we here to produce or are we here to just have make work? Well, it's, I'm sure by now you've seen some of the videos flowing around of these uh, people and they're on TikTok of, uh, you know, people showing their day at the office and it all amounts to adult daycare centers there's there's food out there for you and buffets and there's a trampoline or a ball pit or slide in the office like you're looking at this stuff and you're like is this where you drop your kids off before you go to work or that's your job that's apparently your job is daycare and what is going on in these companies that you can afford these people to be screwing off all the time and then you wonder why they, <laughs> have you know, seen- they can't for profit have you seen those recent Twitter posts about like, hey, uh, you know, this whole tech industry thing, was this all just a monetary illusion? <laughs> yeah. Are they actually building anything or is this just free capital that's going into the pockets of these, you know, for daycare centers? How how real do you think those videos are? Do you think any of them are, are made up? I don't think any of them. Well, there's bound to be something that's made up. Um, but for the, the really popular viral ones, I the question is, is it is that what's normal? Or is this the extreme, and that's why it went viral? Um, I, I don't doubt the authenticity of the viral ones. It's just, is that the norm of what's going on out there? So in my experience, that is the norm. I it, it just blew me away when I saw that. I was like, that's exactly what I've seen. And, and those people will go on to found other companies. Uh, and let's yeah. just call a spade a spade, especially if you fit, you know, the DEI... Uh, um, buckets, right? You can go on to found e- another company call, and you get called the right, called by the right order. DIE, diversity, inclusion, <laughs> and equity. DIE, because once you start down that road, you die. Yeah, yeah, I, that's a great point. I, <laughs> I got to be careful though, because in the IRL business, I, I make that mistake and uh, and still yeah. I could take that one on the chin. But uh, you're exactly right, and um, I, I've just seen these people uh, just float through. I mean. They've, we've had exact conversations where where they're like, you know, I just don't feel like I'm going to be very good as like a producer. I just want to be a manager. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I mean, 
I guess that's a thing. We we do live in the the era of you know like managerial aristocracy and all these uh, product managers, especially. I mean, what does a product manager product manager really do for a stabilized product, right? Like, what a yeah, waste. So, but like um, you're just throwing words now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they they will go on and found these things that that make money and or at least get money thrown at them until they they can a- attract enough talent. Um, that they're, that they're doing something. So, I mean, good on them for understanding the game and playing it. But, uh, I think also just a sign of, of the times in our DIE days and, uh, and just free money floating everywhere kind of days. Well, and that's, that's going to be coming to an end. You, you can't keep, keep that uh, pyramid scheme up forever and it's going to collapse at some point. And I think we're starting to witness that now. I mean, uh, again, as, as we're recording this, most of the tech stocks are collapsing because all the platforms are dead. I mean, Facebook is, or Meta has dropped, it's down in the double digits. I think, I I forget what its high was last year, but it's a dying platform. And it's much like cable TV. Once the last boomer dies, you can just roll up the whole network. It's done. Um, And then, you know, Twitter was a dying platform. We'll see if Elon can revive it. But you look at the advertising model on there where they get most of their money from, and you can't find a single person who's ever purchased a product or done any, who's ever spent money based on a Twitter advertisement. It is dead advertising. So where was this platform going? That's really interesting. I've, I, I totally agree with you. I've never bought anything that I saw on Twitter, or at least was advertised through Twitter in some sort of monetizable way. Yet I would consider Twitter to be like the primary source of truth in my life. <laughs> that's, the direct, that's the crazy you know, part. Peer-to-peer interactions you can have. Yeah. Well, here, here's the crazy uh, part about Twitter because only like there's a very small percentage of the population that even uses Twitter, but it is the most influential platform because wherever you're getting your influence from, whether it be from a website or cable news or you know whatever is influencing your life that came from a person on Twitter who was influenced by another person on Twitter. So it is the main driver of influence in this nation. And yet where like there should be actual money on that platform and it just doesn't make sense how it, how it manages to be do that you think it might be and, and ineffective at the same time. Do you, th- do you think it might be more of a utility and less of a, you know, what you'd consider like a, a typical profitable company? I don't see why it couldn't be profitable though. That's the thing is, you know, Instagram's got their advertising figured out. Facebook knows how to sell to boomers. Um, Everybody else seems to, you know, if they don't come up with an advertising platform, they just die out. So, um, you know, Snapchat's about, about vanished now. So TikTok, they've got, well, actually TikTok's another one that's funny. Their advertising model, their sponsored ads are all garbage. The main advertisement comes in the form of actual content. Um, if you a little tangent here, but if you're selling a product or a service, if you make a catchy TikTok video that goes viral, you'll you'll triple or quadruple your sales in a single month, and you don't even have to pay them to do it. You'll actually, if you have enough followers, you'll get paid for your TikTok videos while advertising your product. But their actual advertisements are pretty garbage, um, at least in my opinion. I, I'm not, uh, I've not seen one that was very appealing to me. So maybe other people are, are getting hit in the right markets on TikTok advertising, but I can't figure out. Um, cause I've, I've looked into actively act- advertising on my other business on TikTok, and their paid advertisements aren't worth the effort. You can't categorize them properly. 
Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I sort of, I'm still thinking about that comment about is the entire tech industry just a, an artifact of, or at least largely an artifact of cheap money, you know, easy liquidity. Yeah. Uh, so, which is, let's be honest, the primary hurdle in launching a startup, right, is your cost of capital. The, yeah. the liquidity premium well, that exists on the on that stock, and then obviously just the uh, uh, the sheer risk involved um, and the the uh, high barriers to entry to be able to survive. And now, and now you can have these unlimited capex budgets. You can have incredibly cheap debt financing, and then you have immediate takeout markets in the form of public markets. Wow! Sounds like we just launched a whole crapload of companies that aren't going to be any good. Yeah. Well, and that's what we've seen over the last decade is all these tech companies that are turning out to be zombie companies and not producing. Um, or what's weirder is the ones that are producing but still losing money, like Uber. How does Uber lose money? There's no infrastructure whatsoever. It's an app on your phone and a person with their own car. And the pricing should include a profit. You know, the, um, the driver gets their portion of the money and the rest goes to Uber. How is Uber running in the negative? How are they losing money? There's no infrastructure. You just got to make sure the app doesn't crash. How is that? A, you know, how are they managing the fail there? Great question. You got me. I, I honestly, I, I would ask the same thing. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I don't know enough details about all the other tech companies that are losing money right now, but it kind of goes along the same lines of, you know, other than the office building you're running, what is your infrastructure? You don't have heavy machinery. You don't have maintenance. You've got some servers and software that needs to stay running. And once you have the software up, you know, I'm not a software guy, so I, I could be totally wrong on this, but my understanding is once it's up and running, you're just watching for glitches and viruses and making sure your next update doesn't actually crash the system. So where is all the loss? How are you pulling all this money in and producing nothing off of it? So that's one aspect to it. The other is like the Airbnb thing, right? I, most of the people I talk to now just hate Airbnb. And, and I, I like to claim credit here because I was there like three or four years ago, just hated Airbnb. And I loved Airbnb way, way back in the day before anybody knew about it. But it's, it, it just seems like it's in the software model to become crappy. <laughs> And obviously every company has a maturity cycle, right? And they, they get old and die just like dinosaurs. But uh, it seems like software companies in particular, they've got this crazy blitz scaling game to win at the startup so that they you know can achieve network effects. And venture capital is the primary method to do that, right? Uh, that's their game. And of course, the entire system is oriented towards the benefit of venture capital. Uh, when you just look at all the incentives and all the uh, marketing and, <laughs> and the way everything is promoted. Um, and then if you win... Now you become a monopoly and a really crappy monopoly. And then you either become a target for, you know, the woke crowd uh, and then you become a terrible company or you become just stagnant and stale and sclerotic and you don't offer real value for your customers. You become a terrible company, but because you own the, the digital ground at everyone's feet, you're going to stick around for a while. And then we all just as customers have to deal with this crap. So it, to me, it, the entire business model just seems really bizarre and short-term fast flame out kind of thing yeah one well, and maybe that's the point maybe it's not meant to succeed maybe it's meant to get cash in my pocket make a little bit of money running it back and forth and then when it crashes into the ground i bail before i'm accountable you know it might just be that a lot of these guys have figured out how to milk money from venture capitalists and it's a big rug pull yeah imagine what happens when a venture capitalist now has to plan on 10 years to an exit uh, imagine how that affects their entry decision. Imagine how that affects valuations upon exit. 
um, when there's no free, no more free money. It's, it's a totally different world. Well, you know, just thinking 10 years ahead would change the whole game. I mean, most of these guys don't, as a whole culture, as a nation, we don't think beyond our next meal. There's no thinking 10 years down the road. We're not even thinking 10 days down the road. Um, so th- that whole forethought has been lost on our whole society, uh, you know, multiple generations now. I don't know if that's just an effect of, um, well, it'd be effective a lot of things. I don't think I could pin it on any one, one thing, but our efficiency has just gotten so great that things just keep working. And we've had easy money for so long uh, in banking and lending and venture capitalism that it, money's always going to be easy. You know, we had um, up, up until recently, the stock market was in what, a 10-year bull run. Everybody was a great investor because if you threw a dart at the wall, it was going to go up. Any stock you hit was going to uh, increase. So everybody was an expert investor up until we start hitting, uh, you know, the tech is crashing now. And, you know, what the S&P is at, again, today, what, minus 20% or something? Or I think it was last week. I don't know what it is exactly today. But my point is, things have been so easy for the last decade that nobody knows how to operate where it's hard. And uh, talk about skin in the game. I mean, what if what if for an alternative model we didn't have all these SEC rules on accredited investors and such, and people who are starting businesses can source capital from people who know them on a small scale without having to go through all this registration crap and all these things that that you know, let's be honest, came about because the government saw a way to inject themselves in the in the yeah. in the, in the so process. Real quick, and, uh, go ahead. Why don't you clarify for the listeners what is an accredited investor and what is essentially how do you become an accredited investor and why is that something that's preventing us from, uh, it's a barrier to wealth, not being an accredited investor. It's, it's the first barrier to wealth that us commoners have to deal with. So why don't you kind of explain what that is and what the advantages are once you reach it? Yeah. Talk about a serious barrier that, that prevents the lower and middle class from, from getting traction and, and, uh, and growing their capital, right? Like the most, the best places to grow your capital are in businesses that are actually growing, actually adding real value, not just consolidating through M&A and, and uh, issuing public securities so that they can reduce their cost of capital supposedly and, and take advantage of the money printers and all that stuff, but building real businesses, right? So this is, this is where people should be investing and should be allowed to invest. So an accredited investor is just essentially someone who's the SEC has determined is sophisticated enough to make a, uh, an investment decision on a company that's not a public security in, in, in very layman terms. Now they have some, uh, some thresholds for that in terms of uh, annual income. I think it's something like uh, over 200,000 uh, a year. Uh, and then um, I believe it's like uh, there's a net asset threshold, which is like a million dollars. These may be antiquated numbers too, because it, it keeps changing uh, like a million dollars uh, without your uh, primary residence. But then there's all these other thresholds too, like um, <clears throat> like uh, like qualified institutional buyers and uh, qualified purchasers, something like that. Uh, so you run into all these all these uh, barriers as you try to make real investments, and you realize that the whole system is stacked against you, right? Like who benefits the most from tragedy? The government. And guess what happened in the <laughs> in the 1920s crash? The government stepped in and said, "Oh, you don't know how to manage your own finances. We're going to do it for you." Uh, and ever since then, all they've done is erect barriers for people who, who want to make legitimate investments, right? I'm not going to invest in some random guy that I've never met. I'm going to invest in somebody that I know pretty well. And, and even if I can't deeply uh, due diligence his business, 
I've got my hooks in him because if if he pulls some kind of shady move, right, he's going to bear the consequences of it, right? He's got reputation to protect. He's got family name to protect. He's got all this stuff. And, uh, and so those things, all those things just fell by the wayside because the government got in the way. Uh, so does that answer your question about uh, a credit investor? Yeah. Uh, you know, I just wanted the listener to, you know, the, the basic listener to know the basic thing was the million, you know, million dollar net asset, 200,000 a year. It may be more than that, probably going to be adjusted higher, but that's what gives you the access to the hedge funds and the better investments that you could be a part of. And instead we all have to play with the stock market and only the, the pieces of the stock market. It's like, we've got the training wheels. Uh, we're not allowed to ride the bike without it. Um, you know, so we've, we have to work even harder to get to the better assets and that's, it's just a pain in the ass. And, you know, they've, they've taken away our ability to fail, except they haven't. They've taken away our ability to succeed because we can all lose our ass on the stock market any given day. That's been proven for the last hundred years that the stock market alone, the S&P 500, it can make or break you on a daily basis. So we have every ability to still fail. We just don't have the good ability to succeed in investing anymore without working that much harder. I think a lot of people probably listening to this would recognize the, uh, you know, the, the typical crypto play when there would be some new token launched and, uh, and then it, it gets picked up by small exchanges here, there, and then eventually makes it to a big exchange like Coinbase. And, uh, people are just trying to front run that listing, right? Uh, and it has no, their investment decision has nothing to do with whatever that, that particular crypto play was or whatever its use case was or, uh, anything like that. It's just, front running the liquidity. And then once it gets listed on a major exchange, then you sell to retail, right? That's the same play that's been happening in public securities for a hundred years or 90 years. Same thing. The, uh, the people who get in first, um, because they don't have government, uh, imposed barriers to entry, uh, they make all the money and then they, uh, leave retail with a bag. Right. And so, uh, yep. it's just same thing, different day. Yeah, and that's it'd be just so much better off if we could actually invest in other people. Because something you and I have talked about when it comes to investing is like right now, I come into let, let's say I do an extra ten thousand dollars of sales this month. Uh, that, that's beyond my budget. It was a, it was just considered a bonus. Do I put that in the stock market, or do I put it in just back into my sell? Like, what is the best thing to do if I have ten thousand dollars right now, and it's always going to be to invest it back into my business? Um, the stock market itself, you know, I'm not saying it's a, it's a, you obviously can make money off of it and you're always going to be able to, but I can make more money with spending money on myself than I can in the market. So why am I going to worry about that instead? And what's worse is I could grow my business faster if I had people who would come to me to invest and down the road, when I'm ready to sell my business and retire, I could be making money by being a, uh, silent partner or something in other people's business by funding them and getting them going, but I got to jump through hoops for it. So I can't get investor money and I can't be an investor at this level. And yet private business is still one of the most profitable places to be, to have your money. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's a great pitch too. Like, uh, when we're, when we're fundraising anywhere, it's like, uh, we, we talk to investors and we're like, Hey, if, when you look at the investment landscape, you're buying a whole bunch of crap. All of it is crap. Uh, and why not buy something that 
is actually producing real real value that's not been priced by the capital markets yet. What a great what a great solution. Unfortunately, there's only a certain set of people that we can make that pitch to. They have to be professional investors. They have to be accredited investors. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a racket. I mean, when you think about it, um, the last thing the government wants is strong independent people, right? The biggest competitors to the government are families, communities, small business, peer-to-peer supply chains. Uh, so you just come to expect that the government's going to try to squeeze these things out because it sees them as a competitor. Yeah. And like what a reversal from what this country started as. And just a lot of things on that because the government was never meant to be this big. Our founding fathers are just doing circles in their graves right now at what's going on here. Um, because an entrepreneurial frontiersman spirit was what America was all about and self-reliance. It was never meant to be government was never meant to be your crutch. And now it's got its fingers and everything that we're not even a capitalist nation anymore. Not truly because every nation, every sector, every industry is propped up by the government somehow. And that's, it's just in the way of everything. But we've, we've reached a point now where, you know, our government officials don't even know, they don't know anything about how this country's run but they're moving all the money around picking the winners and losers of who's going to keep it going without knowing anything about our infrastructure, where our food comes from, where our water comes from, anything of how this country goes. They're just picking winners and losers on bills and you know, you can see the results of it. And as you know, I, I spent a few years in the federal government and uh, it's just one big uh, massive pool of midwit memes, right? That hundred IQ meme where the 70 IQ guy and the 130 IQ guy get it. And the hundred yeah. IQ guy is just like hating life because his worldview is completely opposite of, of all the data he keeps getting. And he's in just massive denial and having all this cognitive dissonance. Same thing. Every, uh, I can tell you up and down all the way through the federal government, same thing. Yep. It, it's just impressive that I mean, right now we've got a, um, Whoever's in charge of the government's nuclear office, I forget the actual title, but the nuclear secretary or whatever is a clown. It's a clown running around in a dress. Some dude with a shaved head wearing a dress that, I mean, what do you know about nuclear energy? Clearly nothing. Because we, we're not building any new nuclear plants. You're trying to mothball the old ones. And even if we do build more nuclear, we don't have enough. Uh, the power transmission lines in this country are so out of date, we can't even push more electric down them. That's a big problem we're running to with solar fields everywhere is every time you, you try to put up a new solar field, you have to look at the, how much power is left in the power lines there. And so I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but um, you, know, we, you have so much space to put in the solar panels, but you can't handle the power output. So there's actually a, a limitation on how many is going in in every section of the country. Um, and, and this, this, uh, that's just one, one sector, you know, our water is uh, a disaster. Flint, Michigan is still a disaster right now. And they're not the only ones. Um, well, Jackson, Mississippi ran out of water a month, a month or two ago. Um, and I, I, that, that just dropped off the news. I don't know what I presumably they got the water back, but I don't know what happened, but we're, we're starting to hit third world infrastructure problems in this nation. And there's no reason for it. There's absolutely no, we should have a, a, we should have elect- so much abundance of electricity that it's basically free. You know, we should, by this point, we should be running entirely on nuclear energy. We should be having the cleanest water on, on Earth. We should have road. The highways should be perfectly smooth. And instead, they're you know they look like the roads in Ukraine right now, just blown up and, and just, you know potholes and uh, washed out entirely. It's like we're de- devolving into a third world country for no reason other than 
this crisis of incompetence that's that's taken over government and corporations. You mentioned a few municipalities in there that had some pretty high profile events. Do you think local governments are are better able to to manage you know like basic government type decisions, or do you think that they have their own set of constraints? Um, is it is it salvageable by just getting control of the local institutions and and making a change there? Well, in the end, the federal government and to some degree the state got the governments control all the money. Um, so that's the issue. I worked at county level uh, for a while and a big part of what county commissioners do in smaller municipalities and smaller counties is apply for state and federal grants, which kind of sounds funny because they're they're They are a elected official working for a state government and a county in the county, but they're actually applying for grants the way you would a grant to go to college. It's the same thing. They're applying for grants to fix septic tanks and fix the roadways the counties don't produce enough money to take care of themselves per se. And it's because the the tax structure is so bizarre in this country that so much of it goes to the federal government that the counties don't have the, the money that's generated in their own county. And when you go down to the smaller, um, the smaller uh, town levels or whether it's a town, township, village, every state has their own names after a certain population, but you know, the cities generate a lot of money, but they don't generate anything useful. They have to import their water. They have to import the electricity is usually on the outskirts and the suburbs. The food all comes from the rural areas. So the money's all wrong. The amount of money you need to build up the, the rural areas isn't generated in the rural area, but all the raw materials you need to make the city happen are generated in the rural area. So it's, I'm not really sure what the answer is. I know we're not doing it right, but I don't have a clear answer as to how to fix it because um, I haven't seen it work. So I couldn't tell you what the working model looks like. So in the same way that we talked about, you know, big companies beating up the smaller companies that are actually producing real value and taking their lunch money, federal government beating up on, uh, you know, small municipalities and rural areas uh, and taking the wealth that, that was generated in those areas uh, and then leaving them destitute. Yeah. Um, God, you, you almost described the northern part of my county to a T, which the the northern part of my county feeds a lot of people. A lot of people are fed from there. The amount of cattle and the amount of hay that feeds cattle that's produced up there um, probably feeds a, you know, a whole city on the, uh, on the west coast. Yet there's like two paved roads. And then the rest are all gravel and, uh, in some cases, dirt. Like it is, it looks like a third world country up there. And yet it produces so much food. It's just, it, there's, everything's backwards on it. You know, there's not even a proper grocery store in that end of the county. You got to drive almost an hour and a half to get to a, a grocery store that has fresh vegetables. That's how out of, out of the way that place is. That's a kind of an extreme example, but it's, it's not alone in, in, in that situation. Have you ever heard of a, a government that, you know, got massive and, uh, and just taxed the crap out of its citizens and then made a reversal or was it always a hard failure. And then they had to rebuild somehow and reconfigure the tax structure or they, they uh, they defaulted on their money or something like that. I don't know that in history, there's ever been a, uh, a reversal of government power. I'd, I'd actually have to really sit down and research that, but, uh, without it being forced to be smaller. I don't think any, you know, the, what's that phrase? Uh, 
there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. That's not an American thing. That's a government thing. I don't, I don't know that any government has ever willingly backed off and handed more power to local municipalities and, you know, other than when it couldn't, like Rome broke apart. It didn't give power to the local, uh, local barons and lords that they they arose because Rome couldn't hold itself together. You know, I don't think, uh, yeah, I'd have to research that, but if it is, it'll be a very unique case. Do you think, uh, do you think Putin and she are, are, are looking at these kind of details and just recognizing the big picture and, and just knowing that if they push a little on the NATO bubble and push a little on the American empire and, and, you know, pull the rug out from underneath the petrodollar system that the rest will just collapse on itself. I mean, I, I seem to remember that I saw a, uh, a speech by him and granted it was obviously translated. So could be fake. <laughs> I wasn't hearing his, his exact words and I wasn't there in person, but uh, where he's talking about what he's seeing in the States and in the Western world about, people recognizing how the government is actually restricting their ability to live uh, and creating these major problems, creating forever wars, creating massive budget deficits, strangling business, strangling people's ability to provide a a standard of living for their family. Uh, And that, you know, if you just apply a little pressure in the right ways that uh, the the U S government and its entire uh, security umbrella is going to have to make a big change. Um. Yes and no that that he that, that he understands that and is doing it on purpose. Um, I don't believe, and especially when it comes to government officials, that they have the competency to push complex conspiracies. But overall, things you know, you could take a broad concept like the petrodollar is bad. You know, from the Russian perspective, and say the petrodollar is bad. We need to collapse the petrodollar. NATO is bad. You know, here's here's some things we can do that'll threaten that, and maybe. And then you then you'd kind of adjust course from there. I don't think they could lay out like, hey, if we invade Ukraine and then we go do the BRICS. I don't think it was a pre-planned to that level of detail. It was more like several ideas of what they're trying to accomplish. And as they move closer, you know, they, you know, they have the Ukraine war going on. I still have no idea what he's what he wants out of that war, what the purpose of this is. You know, everybody says he's either crazy or he's um, um he's either crazy or stupid because he didn't take over the country. Uh, I don't know that he was ever trying to actually take over Kiev or just get the ethnically Russian places, or maybe he just wanted to decimate the Ukrainian army and wants no territory. I have no idea. And time will tell what the actual goals are. Um, Anybody who says that they know exactly what he's trying to do is talking out of their ass, but somehow he's managed to accomplish. um, He has decimated the Ukrainian army. He's made NATO look the fool and, definitely threatened the Euro system and the European union and NATO itself. Like if he keeps applying pressures in the right way, you could see in the next decade, both of those systems collapse. Um, He started building alliances with China and the BRICS nations for a new rival to the petrodollar. And if he keeps applying pressure in the right ways, um, they could actually make a rival currency. It could happen. Um, So those might be the goals they're after, but I don't think there's a like a, a step-by-step play of, hey, on this day we we bomb this, and then on this day we we announce you know some other policy or embargo or whatever. I think it's just that's the goal and you move towards it. Kind of like uh, the, the the left, the, the World Economic Forum. They don't have a step-by-step plan on how how to make everybody dependent on them and all the, the craziness that they want with the you know the you will own nothing and be happy. But 
they elect people, they, they fund candidates who believe in their cause, which causes policies to be enacted that are aligned with their interests. And it moves that way. It's not a conspiracy. It's just applying pressure towards your goals. Imagine the arrogance of, of believing that you know better than the world, how the world should act, right? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, is, is that what against you... everything that we thought of as democracy in the West? Yeah, but at the same time, isn't that the, the attitude that makes you uh, successful on social media? Yeah, yeah, uh, very, very true. <laughs> Hopefully social media is not the... the um, microcosm of of what our entire world is going to look like though but well and that's you know but you bring up a good point of having the arrogance to to think that you know better than the world there's a lot of people right now it's a, it's been a trending topic and i'm sure it's going to be for the next few years overpopulation right this is just one example of this but if you're complaining about overpopulation you're betting against human ingenuity Human ingenuity is what made this population possible. Uh, it's why we're able to feed so many people and, you know, all the doom and gloom talk of, well, we can't feed this many people. Well, it's, well with today's technology, maybe, but every day we have better technology. Every day there's, there's smart people coming up with solutions and problems. That's what an entrepreneur is, a person who's making money off of your problem, off of solving your problem. And you know, all you have to do is look through history to realize that human ingenuity always wins out. So the doom and gloom narrative, it just don't let yourself get into that. We are not overpopulated. We can solve for this. We're already solving for it. And we actually have all the solutions to most of our problems on, you know, on paper, right? We haven't implemented these things yet, but there's no reason that the entire world can't have uh, cheap electricity. We know what nuclear power is. We know how it works. There's not, there's no reason why everybody can't have clean water. We know how to make water filters. Like all the technology is there. It's just the resource management and getting the, um, you know, these Bill Gates Malthusians out of the way, you know, the, the, the Russia thing, this Russia war, this was the most preventable war in history. It did not need to happen, and it could have been ended at any point. We still could end it, except we have American politicians and uh, British politicians who want to make money off of it, plain and simple. There's no other reason that it's still going on beyond that, and there's no need for it. You know, we're going to fight this war to the last Ukrainian alive, and we're going to make a lot of money in the process. Yeah, you know, It really seems like um, of all the fault lines – uh, and uh, points of contention we're seeing uh, arise around the world. It, it seems to me the primary theme, if you had to draw them all together, is humanists versus anti-humanists. Either you want people to be free and prosper with cheap, abundant energy, resources, and high quality of life, or you want to be in control of the resources and have the power to decide how other people are going to live. Yeah, and it's just the, the arrogance of that mindset of of believing that the anti-humanist mindset of there's too many people, the people are doing it wrong. I need to fix this. It's like, who the fuck are you? When, what problems have you solved in your life to begin with? Most of these people are, are do nothings, you know, like Klaus Schwab, he's accomplished nothing in his life. He's built nothing in his life. He just walks around telling people there's, you know, it's gotta be done his way. And that's how most of these politicians are in, in most nations. They've never not accomplished a damn thing in their lives, but they're going to tell us there's too many people and we need to cut back on, on power and consumption and all and food and red meat and whatever else they're telling us that uh, we're having too much of. And it's like, not just that you're wrong, but the arrogance that you get to keep everything you want and 
tell us that we have to uh, downgrade our lifestyle. Just the absolute arrogance of that. And the fact that so many people look at that arrogance as leadership and say, yes, tell me to do less while you do more. That's what really blows my mind. It's, you know, it's almost worse, the people who support them. You know, California is a perfect example of that. You know, uh, their governor, California psycho, uh, Gavin Newsom, in case you haven't noticed, he looks like uh, uh, Christian Bale in American Psycho. Same same outfit, same hair. But he, this guy, the biggest hypocrite in the nation, as he's going through the lockdowns, telling people, you need to stay in, you need to be masked, you need this. You know, he's going out in big parties and he's doing, you know, violating every rule he puts out there. And they love him for it. It's, it's this weird cuckoldry where they look at him and they, the hypocrisy is the point. It's he's the ruling elite, and I have to be, you know, the fact that he's stepping on me is a good thing. And there's so many people who think that way. It's it's mind blowing. I think it has anything to do with kind of like the beta infatuation of rules and and structure because that's how they derive their power and their place in the world, right? If if it's the wild west, betas get crushed, right? Yeah. <laughs> if there's all kinds of rules about diversity, inclusion, and equity, uh, betas, betas understand that real structure and they play within it. And, uh, and so it benefits them. And well, moreover, it, uh, it just restricts all the people who would be able to, to prosper in a free world. Yeah. You know, I guess, well, so I, I have a small, small herd of sheep and I've got, you know, one really aggressive breeding male. He's my alpha. And then another male that, um, He's a breeding male, but unless I separate the two of them, he just don't get to breed. And it's, you get to see who runs the herd and the other, the other males, they all fall in line, you know, to his headbutts. He, he, he dictates how things are going right down to where we're grazing today. I mean, it, it's something else to see. And you realize that we are not far from the animals. You know, you can see how animals, how other mammals behave. And we, I mean, we walk on two legs and wear clothes, but we are not that far evolved beyond them. And it's like, you have one aggressive male telling the herd what to do. They all fall in line. And well, we see that with our, our politicians out there. They might not be overtly aggressive, but their aggression comes in the form of taxation and policing and, you know, other government authoritarianism. But once they lay down that rule, there's, there's just two types of people. Those who fall in line to it and say, yes, tell me what to do. And those who just, you know, they're ready to headbutt him and say, no, I'm going to be the one in charge next. And that's, yeah, there's just not enough alphas anymore. There's there too many people have been, been feminized and betaized. It's so funny you say that. It's almost like, you know, obviously in a flock of sheep, there's, there's a limit on the number of alphas you can have. But in, in the human world, you can be an independent person and just not be completely dependent on the system. Can't be like constrained in, in that beta mindset where you're just a rule follower and you expect your place in the world to be pro, uh, protected by those rules. Right. Um, obviously there's a, there's a spectrum there, right? Like obviously we don't, we don't want to be invaded every day and we need some, some structure that protect us from that. But uh, if you're the type of person who derives your power from government, you like rules, you like constraints on everybody else because it creates a level playing field for you. Whereas if you're the type of person who wants to make your own way in the world, uh, the last thing yeah. you want is all kinds of government structures. I mean, what a, what a huge disaster that government and politics is considered a career. The last thing I want is to elect someone who's looking to make their fortune. I want to elect somebody who built their life and then wants to preserve that system. Yeah. Well, and 
just to kind of go back to that animal analogy too, just to understand how, again, how much we haven't changed. Um, I've had chickens and roosters, right? Uh, lay, you know, uh, egg laying hens and then a couple of roosters with them. And if you put one rooster with the hen, hens, he'll keep them all in line. They'll, you know, they'll start fighting with each other and he'll run in and he'll stop them from fighting and make all the hens behave. And if a threat comes in, the rooster runs to it and uh, either attacks a threat or gets killed while defending the hens. Uh, but when you throw a second rooster in, they immediately start fighting. And in some cases, they'll fight to the death, but not always. So I had um, three roosters running with probably 15 hens, and that ratio was way off. But what happened is one of the roosters became the breeding rooster. He was the one who was allowed to mount and breed the, uh, the hens. But you know what the other two roosters did? They would pin the, the, rooster, the hens down and hold them so he could catch up and mount them and stop them from running away. It was literal chicken gang rape. Only it was one of them that was allowed to mount, but the others would hold them in place. It was the craziest thing. And you, you kind of think about that when we're talking about the betas, how quickly they fall in line. And are, are, I'm not talking about them being gang rapists here, but the although that does happen, but the fact that they they see that authoritarian figure and they just fall in line and do as they're told, and they you know, they're holding down the masses while being oppressed themselves. It's just, it, it's really, you watch animal behavior and you start to see, see a mirror image of it in, in humanity. I've definitely seen that, uh, <laughs> that rooster hen dynamic in the duck world every spring. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, you learn a lot on a farm. You definitely get to, you get to see a lot of how the world works just watching the animals interact. So, I mean, what, I, what would you say are some takeaways from the things we, we just discussed today? I mean, one to me is it's just be cognizant of the mentality of the people around you. And obviously that's an obvious point, but it, it's so much deeper than, uh, than you might think because all these particular character traits, personality traits, they arise from a person's worldview and uh, the way that they believe rules should be enforced and, and what you should obey and what you should disobey. I mean, it creates all these really important um alliances and loyalties and uh, and people who are going to undermine you and so as you're building a network of people to um to to build a strong community and be more resilient and not be dependent on the government not be dependent on big cities and not be fragile right because cities are well, fragile so so a lot of uh, that is you know, look for individuals who take accountability for their actions um people who and not the fake accountability where you know they they Look for people who actually hold themselves responsible for their life. Um, people who aren't victims. You know, that we, we, there was a poster in, in basic training that said, there are no victims, only volunteers. And th you know, what they're telling us is, you know, you, the, you're not a victim of the drill sergeant. You volunteered to be in the military. So suck it up. But that's look for people who have a victim mindset to stay away from them. Look for people who take accountability for their life and Pretty much those those two things. I mean, we could list others, but those two things right there are going to lead to people that are, are self starters, self motivated producers. You know, look around your company. If you're still working for somebody else, look at the people who are producing and the people versus those who just do the bare minimum. Some people just work; they can't stop themselves. They have to work all the time. Those are the people you want to partner up with. If you're going to start a business, that's the person you want to take with you. Um, you know, you never get anywhere with the, the victim mindset people. And then also watch for the people who 
that the NPCs that will rework their brain to make the company or the government always right. Um, I saw this when the vaccine rollout came and it was just how quickly people were like, well, you know, military can just tell you what to do with your life. You, you have no right to say no to this. And like that was fast, like really fast. You didn't take any time at all to be like, Hey, let's try to get some waivers. Let's talk about this. Let's see if we can, you know, give this thing a little bit more time. It was just an instant instance. Like, Army says you must do this. Therefore, that is what's true. That is what's right. And if you disagree with it, you know, you're you're just in the wrong. No thought process whatsoever. And watch for people who do that because it's, it's not just the vaccine. And people will do that when they'll, they'll believe that up is down and down is up just because they're told to believe that. Yeah, certainly. Don't don't just think about who you want on your team, obviously, from a business standpoint or, you know, a local community standpoint, but also think about who are you willing to be judged by? Because guess what? That day is coming. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like this, this will be a, a topic for another podcast. It has nothing to do with Wi-Fi economy or pioneering, but um, the day of judgment is coming hard for people. And the, like I said, this has nothing to do with anything we just talked about, but the trans kids issue those parents, we're going to see problems in the 20, late 2020s and early 2030s that we have never seen in history. We're going to see levels of patricide and violence unlike anything before. Um, there's a reckoning coming, and that's just part of it. And uh, like I said, this has nothing to do with our current podcast, but when you said that there's a reckoning coming, that was the first thing that came to mind is you know, you cannot sacrifice children in that manner. And even, even the COVID um, – what we did to a generation of kids by masking them up and locking them in their houses and putting them on zoom classes and then hiding them away. There's a reckoning coming from that. And it's going to be years from now before the consequences are faced. But you know, you have, you have to look at these types of things and then realize that, okay, that was wrong. What's the next thing you're going to be told to do that's wrong. And are you, are you going to be the person who goes along with it or not? Because, and look around you, figure out who the people are that are going to stand up and stand against, you know, the current thing, because these are the people you want to be, have on your side. It's in your knowledge of history. Is there any society that has ever prospered after embracing infanticide? No, no. So much. So if you read, um, if you, if you read the old Greek mythologies, which is a rabbit hole unto itself because they've been written and rewritten a lot, but there is a prevailing theme in there of infanticide and it, uh, how negative the Greeks, the Greeks were not a happy people. They're all, they're all, all their stories end in tragedy, but they had a special place in hell uh, or Hades for, um, for infanticide and cultures that practice that. And I suspect what's been lost to history is that the Greeks slaughtered a lot of um, infanticidal societies because it's just the way the stuff's written there. You can catch on that undertone. And then like, you know, you look at what happened with Carthage. They were, they were, they were another nation that was known for infanticide. And well, they got, they got death. Well, they got decimated in three wars and then it, it, the Romans just completely plowed their city under the ground. You know, it, um, infanticide does not work. And that's essentially what we did. Um, and we're doing it in multiple ways now. It's crazy. We, we COVID, we're going to sacrifice the mental well-being of children to protect the boomers. Well, the boomers have not at any time in history shown that they're worth protecting, but we're going to sacrifice children for, for their comfort and their security. That was our first mistake. Now the transing of kids and what we're doing to them, uh, 
you know, giving them permanent uh, hormone blockers and puberty blockers and these permanent sex change operations for 12 year olds, that's going to come back on us in a bad way, a uh, really bad way. Like when I, you remember the Menendez brothers from the 90s, Eric and Lyle Menendez murdered their parents as a kind of a big news story cycle back in the, the mid 90s. I they're going to be the, yeah, they're, they're, they're going to become the new heroes of, of this trans generation. They're going to, that's going to be a walk in the park compared to what's coming. Cause when these kids grow up and realize what their parents did to them and how happy their parents were to do this to them and how eager they were and how their teachers doing it to them, they're going to come back hard and it's going to be, it's going to be violent. So it's, I, I'm calling this one now. It's going to be a bloodbath when these kids grow up. Yeah, I mean, as a ba- basic litmus test for the quality of a civilization, obviously courage, accountability, all these things, uh, industry, all, all these things matter a lot. But uh, just as a basic litmus test, their anti- or their attitude towards infanticide, it, it just really makes the world really clear to me. Yeah, I mean, if you're not setting your children up to conquer the world after you, what the hell are you doing? What is the point? And if you're willing to sacrifice your own children to great gain clout on social media or to protect yourself, I mean, what? No, no, that's, and then that shows that we are in a bad way in this country. And you, you can see a lot of Europe is already reversing this. They, they, uh, across Europe. And I think even in England, they've shut down a lot of these, uh, child trans uh, clinics, but here in the, in the U S and, and Canada, we're doubling down and trying to increase it. It's like, yeah, well, if we keep down that path, we're going to pay the price for it. One of the few things that I've, well, I, if you're living in a red state, obviously a lot easier to find people who, who embrace these kinds of values. But even in red states, I'm noticing, you know, Republicans, people who call themselves conservatives who are still very, very pro-abortion, pro these kinds of things, uh, and are just kind of going along with the flow, right? Just like the woke church and woke pastors, they're just trying to be popular. Um, and so very important to keep that in mind because these are, um, these are people who are hiding in societies that you think are virtuous and moral, but I, I can't think of if, I mean, if you're sacrificing your children, there is no basis for morality anywhere in the world. That's it. You lost it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can't be right about anything if you're willing to sacrifice a child for your own comfort and convenience, right? And even if the child is not born yet, you're, what you're saying is my comfort, my convenience, my lifestyle is more important than the responsibility of a, of a child in the future generation. And it's pure narcissism. And it's um, it's a decaying, sign of a decaying society. You know, it's we're, we're lazy, we're narcissistic, and no no thought of the future whatsoever. But, yeah, know, so you, I just wanted to bring that point. up as your as your. Oh, God, go ahead. Finish your thought. I was just kind of rounding it out. Oh, I was going to say, like, um, well, we're talking about making alliances with other people. Don't let politics uh, be the driver of that, because conservative and and a lot like you already mentioned, like, a lot of conservatives have um, basically leftist views, but left and right politics is more driven by personality than any other factor. You know, if you, you want to get men to vote Republican, you just get them up to a healthy level of testosterone. That that published dropped earlier this year. That study published earlier this year where, uh, you know, low testosterone men will vote Republican if you give them testosterone injections. So the test hasn't been done to my knowledge, but I, I assume the 
inverse is true that if you give women a healthy level of estrogen, they'll, they'll vote Democrat. Like that's it. So that's, don't look at somebody as conservative or, or liberal uh, as ideologically aligned. That's more personality type shit. And you see, um, a lot of stuff gets normalized that shouldn't be normalizing killing children, transing children, um, the, the mask shit and, and lining up and just obedience to the government. That's not stuff that should be normalized and it's happening on both spectrums of, of the political debate. So, you know, don't, don't just say, well, my neighbor's a conservative, conservative, therefore I can trust them. That there's a little bit more to it than that. You got to make sure that they're a thinking person. You got to make sure that they're actually ideologically aligned with you and have your same morals, not just your same uh, voting pattern. It's no longer a test. Yeah, definitely. Just, uh, it's, yeah. It's uh, principles, not politics. Yeah. So as you're as you're figuring out your tribe, pay attention to yeah. those things, not just it, "Hey, I'm in a yeah. red state. I'm good because I think the the government's going to protect my yeah. my freedoms here." No, there's still a lot of social norms that you have to pay attention to. That are that are just yeah. straight so up evil. It, it's kind of an inverse of uh, you know all squares are rectangles, not all rectangles are squares. It's most likely now if you're a person who's physically fit, you take responsibility, and and you're self driven and motivated, and and everything we've talked about. 99% of the people are going to be conservative, right? That's just how it works. But not all people that are conservative are self-starters and motivated and take responsibility for their lot and all that. So it's you're going to find the people in that circle, but that doesn't mean that they're all in the circle. You know, they're not all going to line up with you. And that's not to say that there aren't liberals too who share your same values. You'd, you'd be surprised at how many liberals live a conservative lifestyle and vote liberal and how many uh, conservatives live a liberal lifestyle and vote conservative. Some of it is just, you know, they're, they're told by their parents how to vote and then they go live a lifestyle that's completely opposite of their voting patterns. So that's, that's something to be, to be watchful for too. That's a great point. So how do you, uh, how do you choose your tribe, um, but still keep open-minded about, about things that you need to, uh, <laughs> that could be improvements to your life, right? How do you how do you improve without throwing away the the things that got us here, right? <laughs> like like how Republicans have just not conserved every anything, right? But there's a happy medium in there somewhere. How do we protect the important institutions um, while staying open minded and forward thinking about how to improve uh, our standard of living, how to improve uh, our communities, how to improve uh, make a better future. <sighs> Um, that's, that's a damn good question. And I, I think we, I think people have been trying to figure that one out for a couple thousand years, but, um, generally speaking, don't, if you see somebody like, all right, I'll kind of give you an example. I fo started following a guy on Twitter recently who, um, he's kind of a masculinity hustler, which is a term I'm still working out, but he's one of these guys who's trying to sell beta males to be more masculine men. Right. And, about half of his tweets are absolute gold. Whereas as he explains male and masculine dynamics, female feminine dynamics, how women think throughout the month and how their cycle changes their moods and their hormones and, and what that, you know, how to negotiate with it. And then other times he'll talk about stuff that's just so far missing the mark. It's completely off. Uh, like just wildly off. I've never seen somebody who either gets it perfectly right or perfectly wrong. It, it, it's actually pretty incredible. I can read it and take it seriously because I know what he's getting right and know what he's getting wrong. And I, I pull the stuff that he's getting right and I add it to my own stack of stuff, you know, my own knowledge and I dismiss the rest. So part of it is having a filter for people who 
Nobody gets it right all the time. Don't write people off because they're wrong. Just find the stuff that works and understand that you may you may follow somebody or read somebody who's 90% correct, or they may only be 10% correct, but that 10% might be really good. The thing to watch out for is the stuff that's wrong, knowing how to identify it and not letting it um, not letting it dissuade you from from taking the good that they have to say. I mean, that's part of the part of it, I would say, I would think. If any of that made sense. Yeah. And, and I'm bringing this back to uh, masculinity because you brought that up. That's, that's perfect. Uh, I personally, I'm trying to see men less in terms of alpha versus beta. Um, Cause when I, when I watch the animal world and, and two males kill each other over breeding rights, that's, that's probably not a great way to organize society. Right. So um we can't be can't be killing each other in order to to breed, but uh, I think perhaps a better way to to uh, grade men, if there's such a thing, is is just grading them on masculinity. Do they have alignment between the traits that make them valuable and, and capable in the world, or are they or are they living a life that's not in alignment with that? Like if you're if you're essentially living feminine and you're a male, that's uh, it. Just seems like you haven't. <laughs> it's so hard for you to contribute to the people around you because you've given up all your advantages and the things that you're focusing on a woman's way better at because she's naturally inclined to that. Uh, so I, I, th- I try to think in terms of masculinity in, instead of alpha and beta. Although, I mean, let's be honest when you're thinking about people who follow rules and, and need and need the, the world to be made safe for them to, to wake up every day. I mean, that's a very beta trait, but at the same time, that's, that's also just somebody that, if it's a male, I wouldn't really consider masculine. Yeah. And that's God, cause there's so many people in this space. It's even hard to get solid definitions of alpha and beta, but you know, you think of, don't think of alpha as good person, beta, bad person. Think of it as alpha is the traits. I'm going to very much oversimplify this. Alpha is the traits that make women want to sleep with you. Beta is the traits that makes women tolerate you outside of sex. Um, you know, and some of those beta traits aren't bad things like taking care of your kids and, and you know, playing with the kids, give, giving a bottle to your baby so your wife can take a nap. That might be a beta trait, but it's not a bad thing. You know, your wife might need a nap for every now and then, or it's not it's not a bad thing to help with raising your children. That's just basic parenting. But um, we've become so feminine as a society and men have become so emasculated that these masculinity hustlers are coming out and essentially teaching people pound on your chest and scream, I'm a man, you know, follow me. And that's a, there's TikTok videos that are literally like that. That's almost how bad it's gone. So think of it as alpha is the things that are make women attracted to you. And you want your women attracted to you. You want your wife attracted to you. So yes, you're going to get in shape. You're going to do things with your hands. You're going to protect her. You're going to build, but you don't have to be constantly thinking alpha and beating your chest all the time. Just you know, just be a man for God's sakes. Like, so we talked about, um, in, in previous conversations about how you don't do everything yourself, right? Just cause you can fix your car. doesn't mean it's the best use of your time. You know, if you have to take eight hours to fix your car versus paying a mechanic, if you can make more money in the eight hours and you'll pay the mechanic, it's better to pay him right from a cost standpoint. But if you have the knowledge of how to fix your car and the ability you, you've retained the masculine traits, you've just traded them for something more valuable, which is going to make money and preferably your Wi-Fi business or you're running your own business. But when you see a man who doesn't know how to change his own oil, you almost always see a beta. doesn't mean that every, every alpha male changes his own oil, but I've never met 
I've never met an alpha who, or a masculine man who didn't know how to change an oil or change a tire and, you know, change a flat tire and just do basic things. I've never met a man who, who didn't know those things that I respected. You know, when, when you see something, yep, who just absolutely. Know, they get a flat tire and they stare at it and the, like it's some kind of hieroglyph. They have no idea what to do. I've never met one of those where I was like, well, that's a man I respect. Uh, actually, that I, you nailed it with that definition. I, I think that's probably the best definition I've ever seen. Um, and uh, probably worth stating as a, as a point to end on, right? Alpha is traits that make women want to sleep with you versus beta are traits that make women want to be around you outside of sex. I, yeah. Man, that's what a great uh, rule of thumb there. <laughs> you know, that's, I'm sure the masculinity hustlers and, and the professionals in that field will, will take issue with that definition. But for everybody who's not in that field, I, I don't know how to simplify it better. You know, um, just look at it this way. The book that your wife reads is going to be an over the top alpha male. And when they read uh, romance novels, it's some over the top shit. They don't want that in real life. They just want to know you could do that in real life, but they don't want you acting that way. That's, um, that, that's kind of how it comes down to, you know, if you're really confused about what, what makes these men turned on, um, so attractive to women, read a couple of romance novels and you'll, you'll start to get the idea, but just don't bring it to that level. So, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. All right. So we're going to be wrapping up this podcast. Um, I know at the very beginning we talked, we said we we're going to talk about housing as an investment. Um, clearly we did not get that, get to that today. We got tangents all over the place. So we'll get to that. Uh, hopefully in the next podcast, um, but otherwise we're going to wrap it up here guys. And thank you for listening. Um, as always, we're want to get your feedback. We want to hear what you have to say and, uh, any recommendations or thoughts that you want us to expand upon in the next episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Just a reminder that nothing we say here is to be considered financial advice. Remember folks, nobody's going to save you. It is up to you to save yourselves. Have a good day.